our Bible reading, which comes from Nehemiah chapter 10, and you'll find that on page 496 of the Church Bibles. I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. That's what Sam said in the first part of the Lord of the Rings trilogies for you fans out there. Uh, And he kept his promise. But one of the biggest promises that uh, you have made in your lives, the biggest promises should be those you have made before God. If you're married, you will have uh, made a promise before God, you would have sworn before God, and in the presence of this congregation, I give myself to you as your husband or wife, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part, and to this end I give you my word. Those presenting children before God will have promised to bring them up within the Christian community, to bring them up in instruction and discipline of the Lord. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah this term, and in recent weeks we have seen how the Jews, having completed the rebuilding of the walls, came together to hear the word of God, and how as they did so, it brought them to tears. They realised how they had disobeyed God. And so they spent much time in confession, confessing the sins of their ancestors, but also acknowledging their own sins. 
that they were just as guilty. They too had been stubborn, rebellious and arrogant and needed God's mercy. But as we learned last week, because God is a gracious, compassionate and merciful God, he forgave them. And he can forgive us too, because his son, Jesus, in his death on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. Well, we finished last week by saying, whilst confession is important, after all, you can't be forgiven for your sin until you have confessed your sin, it needs to go alongside repentance. Repentance is the actual act of uh, saying, not only am I sorry for what I have done, I promise not to do it again, as Grant was telling us earlier. It is an expression of heartfelt remorse, a desire to change, to put sin to death in our lives. It is accepting Jesus as our Lord, when we're going to follow, as well as our Saviour. And so chapter 9 ends uh, in verse 38 with these words. In view of all this that's gone before, all of this confession of our sin, we are making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. What are they doing here? They're coming together to make promises to God. Another word for this agreement is a covenant. Covenant is a word that uh, the Bible uses quite a lot. It's used to describe a special relationship between two parties who both want to make this relationship work. And so the responsibilities as well as blessings that come out of that relationship. And the basis of the covenant between God and his people is that God promises to make his people his treasured possession but he expects them to dedicate their lives to him, to obey him fully. The Jews here are making a binding agreement in writing to which they attach their seals because they want to show that they are serious about this. They're serious about their relationship with God. That's a bit like our view of church membership here at Long Crendon. We we take it seriously because it is about our relationship with God. It's how we treat our fellow believers. And so before becoming a member, we ask people to read the responsibilities of members And we ask them to show that they are in agreement with them by by signing. So who is entering into this agreement then? Well, look at at verse 28. It says, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. It is everybody who is able to to understand what they are doing. Everybody who is able to and prepared to commit themselves to be a part of the people of God. Now, there would have been those from other nations in in their number and they would have had to separate themselves from their people to say, I no longer worship the gods of my people. I worship the one true God. I'm identifying myself with him. So what do they promise to do? Well, they are dedicating their lives to God. And they mentioned a few areas uh, where they've got it wrong, where they need to renew the covenant they have with God. I should say, what I'm saying this morning is very much aimed at those who are already Christians, how we live out our Christian lives. But I do hope that for those of you here this morning who are not yet Christians, that you will see how a life that is dedicated to God can actually be exciting, it can be fulfilling. And it's a life that is open to all here. Well, the first promise the people make is the 
the most important because all the other ones actually flow from this one. And that is that we will submit ourselves to the word of God. We will submit ourselves to the word of God. Verse 29. All these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. What they're doing is they're submitting themselves to the authority of the Bible. And that is what we do as a church. You know, one of the statements in our basis of faith is about our view of Scripture, of the Bible. And this is, this is what it says. I'll read it out to you. God has revealed himself in the Bible, which consists of the Old and New Testaments alone. Every word was inspired by God through human authors, so that the Bible as originally given is in its entirety the word of God, without error and fully reliable in fact and doctrine. The Bible alone speaks the final authority and is always sufficient for all matters of belief and practice. Now, that's quite a comprehensive statement. Uh, but it's all well and good signing up to a statement like that, saying, yes, I believe in that, but it's no good if we don't actually read the Bible, if we don't actually know what is in there, is it? And so one of the responsibilities of membership is to agree to regular attendance at Sunday worship, and when possible, at the main weekday meeting of the church for prayer, Bible study, and fellowship. Another one is regular personal prayer and Bible study. So we come together to read and understand the Word of God. We come together to help each other apply it to our lives, to be built up as the Church of God, and we also study the Bible on our own. We allow God to speak to us individually in those times. It's an intrinsic part of our lives as Christians. Well, so far, so good, but what happens when we come across a part of the Bible which you know, we don't like? which we find actually quite difficult. Because to say, I promise to submit myself to the word of God, means rather than ignoring that, rather than trying to change it, is to say, actually, I will conform humbly to what it says. I will repent of anything that I find difficult about it. And it's interesting, there are three specific applications in this passage here that the people go on to promise. Commands in the Bible that have been highlighted, presumably because as they they came together to confess their sins, God was making clear to them, actually, these are areas of their lives they need corporately to put right. These are where they're going wrong. And not surprising, these are three of the things that we might find hard as Christians today. And I'll confess they are hard to preach on, because many of us will have failed in them, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore them. And as we go through them, if you feel convicted by God, don't be discouraged, don't be hard on yourself, but rejoice that God has given you his spirit to help you, to help you live the life of a Christian. We're not living the Christian life in our own strength. It is the spirit working in us, changing us to be like Christ. And in all of these areas, it is about prioritising God. It is about dedicating our lives to him. And remember that these instructions are not here to spoil your life, they are here to make it more fulfilled and more blessed. Well, the first promise is that we will dedicate our relationships to God. We'll promise obedience to him as we submit to him in our relationships. Look at verse 30. It says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. 
Now, as with all Old Testament commands, we have to ask ourselves, is this a command limited to the nation of Israel and the Old Testament? Or does it apply to us as Christians today? And to find that out, we can turn to the New Testament and and see if there's a a corresponding passage that talks about the same principle there. And in this case, there is one in 2 Corinthians. Um, This is what it says. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So what they're promising here is not about um, marrying somebody from a different country. It's about marrying somebody who is not a believer, who is not part of the people of God. Now, why does it say that? Now, if these commands are about obedience to God, giving him a central place in our lives, what difference does it make who we marry? Well, as a Christian, the most important person in your life is Jesus Christ. You want to read the Bible to get to know him better. You want to pray to him. You want to meet with others to to worship him. You want to use your money to to give to his ministry. You want to use the talents that you have to serve him. You want to tell others about him. You want to pray to him. You want guidance from him. You want to bring your family up to love him. And so it's not like having different hobbies. It's not like... um, you know, on Saturdays, your husband goes off to play football. On Sundays, you go to church. It's your different things that you do. A marriage is the most intimate relationship you can have with anybody. And God wants you to bless you through that. And the greatest intimacy you can have with your husband or wife is not um, at the emotional level. It's not even at the sexual level. But it's at the spiritual level. And if you've committed your life to Christ, but your husband or wife hasn't, then it's very difficult to grow in your faith, which is the most important thing that we'll want as Christians. But notice that this promise that the Jews are making in this passage is a promise they are making for their children. It says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to those peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, obviously, ultimately, that is a decision that our children will have to make when they get to that age. We can't make it for them. But there is a principle here of how do we instruct them in terms of what is right? How, what are the messages that we give them about what is right? Now, you might want your children to be happily married. And that is not a bad thing to want for them. But sometimes I think we can give the impression that marriage in itself is more important than their relationship with God. Now, I know there will be some here this morning who have made a decision that they won't marry somebody who is not a Christian. And they are wondering, will they ever meet somebody? You know, God doesn't say that everybody will get married. And if you're approaching it as some sort of deal with God, you know, look, God, I kept my side of the deal. So where is this person that um, I'm meant to marry? Then you will end up being bitter against God. And if singleness is a state that some are called to, it's no worse than marriage. God will provide you with friends to sustain, sustain you through your life. You can still live an enjoyable life. It's not one is better than the other. You're called to one or the other. Now, you may be somebody who's already married to somebody who's not a Christian. What do I do in that situation? Well, don't firstly assume that your husband or wife will become a Christian through your efforts. Don't blame yourself if they don't become a Christian. It's not down to you at the end of the day. It's down to the grace of God at work in their lives. Pray for them, witness to them through the way you behave. 
and pray that they will be saved. But ultimately, it is God who saves, it's not you. So don't beat yourself up. I told you this was going to be hard, didn't I? This is the next hot potato we're coming on to. And what are we going to promise ourselves next? We will dedicate a day to the worship of God. Have a look at verse 31. Where the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Now, how do we formulate a principle for our lives from this verse? Well, again, we need to go elsewhere in the Bible to, to formulate a, a teaching on this. And the place to start is in Genesis, where it says God made the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. He enjoyed what he had made. He saw that it was good. He appreciated it. When we move on to Exodus and uh, the establishing of God's covenant with his people, God gives them ten commandments to live by. And one of those commandments was to keep the Sabbath day holy. And the reason that he gives for that is, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. But what does that mean then, to, to keep it holy? What does it mean to keep a day holy? Well, it means to set it apart from the other days, to treat it differently. Why? So that we can enjoy intimacy with God. How did Sunday become the Sabbath? Well, after Jesus rose from death on a, a Sunday, the early Christians changed the day that they met together. They changed their Sabbath from a Saturday to a Sunday. Now, of course, we should focus on God every day of the week. Our whole lives are worship to God. We've sung that this morning. We want to dedicate our lives to God. But most days of the week, let's be honest, are, are busy where we're working, where we have other responsibilities, um, where we're washing the car, we're mowing the lawn, we're just um, sorting out the insurance and, and, and so on and so on. Take a rest from work, from everything else that fills our lives so that we can enjoy our families, so that we can enjoy gathering with God's people, so that we can enjoy God. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day for our benefit, and not just for physical rest, but because it helps us come closer to God. And what is the way in which we come closest to God? Well, by meeting with his people, by worshipping him, by spending time reading his word, by spending time in fellowship with other Christians. And it's not just about the Sunday service, although that should be a priority for us, but spending time with Christians over lunch and in the rest of the day. And spending time with our own families. How much time do, in the week do we spend in quality time with our families, or how much of it is rushing around, doing our own thing, taking people here and there? How much time do we have just to sit down with our families? Well, it's always possible to make excuses for doing something on a Sunday, and the passage here talks about buying grain from neighbouring peoples. And by not doing it on the Sabbath, you know, that may have had a, a cost attached to it. it, may mean they had to go without but what they're saying here, as they promise here, is that worship of God is the most important thing for us. We will dedicate their saying of day to the worship of God. Well, before coming on to the last point, it does say there in the second part of that verse 31, every seventh year we will forgo working the land. And uh, that command is specific for Israel at that time, but I think the principles are still valid. To what extent do we have an environmental awareness as Christians? After all, it says in Genesis, God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and to take care of it. There's a lot we could say about that, but uh, that will have to wait, I think, for another time. And likewise, the command about um, cancelling debts. You know, we did a look at that a couple of weeks ago in terms of our priority to our fellow Christians who may be struggling financially and in other ways. Let me come on to the last point, which is covered in the, the last few verses of this chapter, verse 32, through to the end. And that is, we will dedicate our money to God. Verse 32 says, We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. And it goes on to talk about various offerings, including wood, first fruits of the crops, the fruit, firstborn of sons and cattle, herds and flocks, ground meal, grain offerings, etc., etc. And in short, it says at the end of the chapter, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, in terms of giving uh, so that the priests can do what they need to do in the temple, obviously that obligation is no longer valid for us today. The temple uh, was this symbolic place where the Jews came together to meet God, where they offered him sacrifices to ensure that they were right with God. That has been superseded by the person of Jesus Christ. We're told that it's in him and through him that we have access to God the Father. It's in his name that we bring our worship. Also, not many of us are farmers, so we don't um, have much produce of the land to bring to him. But the principle here that can be found in the New Testament is about giving willingly, giving generously, and giving regularly. Let me read. Um, Actually, let's just turn to 2 Corinthians 9. So the one cross-reference this morning. We find that on page uh, 1163. 2 Corinthians 9, verse uh, 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The implication of this promise is that the people here have become pretty stingy in their giving. That uh, the house of God has been neglected and they need to do something about it. Maybe because of the famine. Maybe they've been holding back some of the stuff they've got. Um, maybe because of all the taxes they have to pay to, to their Persian masters. And so they're holding back what they should be giving to the Lord. And the biblical principle here is that everything belongs to God. And so it's not so much, what do I need to give of what is mine? But how much of what is already God's should I keep for myself? And what the Jews are promising here is that they will not neglect the house of our God. They will not look after their own needs first, and see, well, what is left over to give to the house of God? 
They want to ensure that the house of God has all it needs first. And it's easy to think, isn't it, what I have is mine. We are stewards of what is actually God's. And to be a good steward doesn't mean I'm going to hold on to it and save it for a rainy day in case something happens to me. It means to spend it on the Lord's work in the way he is calling us to spend it. Now, obviously, we will shortly be um, looking at the building project and asking people to make pledges for, for that. And let me just say, to be committed to the project does not depend on some sort of minimum amount that you are able to give. We are all in different financial situations here. When Jesus saw rich guys throwing wads of money into the offering plate and a widow put in a couple of small coins, what he said was, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. It has been committed with what little we can give. And it's also not just a commitment of money, because the greater commitment here is when we're talking about the building project is, am I prepared to give my time and energy into the work of the Lord? The building project, the building, is a tool for the work of the Lord. So are we prepared to commit ourselves to the ministry here in this church and dedicate our whole lives to that? Well, as we um, come to, to an end, the people in this passage are those who have read the Bible. They're those who promise to submit to its authority. They're ready to change their priorities they're going to promise to give priority to God in their relationships, in their worship, and in their money. And I hope we are able to make that same commitment. But before we end, it's important to make the point that when God makes promises, he keeps them. When we make promises, we will fail because we are still sinners. The important thing is that we want to change, that it's a real desire in our hearts to change, we want to dedicate our lives to God, and that we will seek His power to help us to do that. Let's not be surprised when we fail, but let's rejoice that God will forgive us, He will pick us up, and He will empower us to continue to dedicate our lives to Him, if that is really what we want to do.